So this evening I'd like to reflect on a Pali word, quality, sukha, which usually translates as happiness. And the Buddha once said that this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. So the Buddha speaks of sukha as being the demeanor or the embodiment of a liberated heart. Now, sukha, like most Pali words, is a multidimensional word, again, which is difficult to capture its meaning in just one word, happiness. It includes a contentment, a quiet joy, sense of completeness, enoughness, a peacefulness, and also describes really the nature of a heart untangled, a heart unbound. I want to read you a few verses from the Dhammapada that speaks to this. So happily we live without hate amongst those who hate. Among people who hate, we live without hate. So happily we live without misery amongst those in misery. Amongst people in misery, we live without misery. And so happily we live without ambition amongst those with ambition. Among people who are ambitious, we live without ambition. Health is the foremost possession. Contentment, the foremost wealth. Trust, the foremost kinship. And nibbana, the foremost happiness. Tasting the flavor of solitude and peace, one becomes free of distress, drinking the flavor of dharma joy. I think there is, for probably for all of us, I'm sure, in our lives, moments when we glimpse sukha and our happiness, unbidden moments when the heart is gladdened. And in the the tradition, there's two kinds of happiness that is spoken about. One is a worldly happiness and one is a non-worldly happiness. We do experience much happiness through our contact with the world, through our contact with the world, through our sense doors. And the Buddha was never one to negate or to somehow demean this. But we also appreciate that these moments of happiness are sometimes episodic. We, today we had a visit from a small baby, and you've never seen so much happiness in the staff dining room, you know, just that delight of, of being with such a, a young being. We are happy often in connection with good friends, the beautiful sunset, a wonderful piece of music, a wonderful piece of poetry, creativity. And these are never moments to dismiss. So this word, word unworldly is not meant in any way to be a pejorative kind of word. 
because these moments, these these glimpses and these tastes of happiness through the sense doors really do offer us a kind of inner glimpse of what it really feels like to 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 feel fully alive in that moment that sense that there's nothing missing that it's it's a sense of sufficiency where nothing is lacking and of course there's no desire to be somewhere else those moments offer us a taste of contentment and ease and truly are a glimpse actually uh, of our heart's capacity for sukha our inner capacity for happiness and for sukha. But, of course, as we know, all experiences and all events have beginnings, have endings, they change, they pass away, and other events come into our lives that we're also asked to meet. Moments of loss, of disappointment, of frustration, of difficult conditions... And too often, sukha becomes something of a memory, a, a distant memory even, that we find ourselves longing to recapture. And as people say, I remember when I was happy. Hmm? I remember when I was happy. But these glimpses of sukha hold actually so much potential because they really invite us to to understand, well, to investigate, to question, to understand the nature of happiness and to develop our capacity for sukha. Sadly, that longing for repetition of of moments of happiness can turn into a heroic and often a really disappointing endeavor to repeat a memory. And it never really has the same taste, does it? I remember teaching in Switzerland a few years ago, and I teach it, you know, the center I teach at in Switzerland is pretty stunning. I mean, the meditation room windows look out over Jungfrau, you know, and it's the most remarkable sense of space and beauty. And someone come in and, and, and they said, I came back because I was just so happy here, you know, so happy here with this incredible view, you know. And she said, but it's not as beautiful as I remember. <laughs> we probably have those moments, isn't it? Gosh, it just doesn't taste as good as I remembered. It's not as beautiful as I remember. And, I, and you know, I really thought, well, I'm, I'm sure the Alps haven't changed that much. <laughs> you know, not in a couple of years anyway, you know. I mean, we know they're changing. But, but of course, what has changed is the eyes and that tr- endeavor to repeat an experience, to repeat a certain feeling. And that endeavor to repeat the memory of happiness is often actually what we call craving, a distortion of a longing for happiness that is turned so easily into a want or a need or an insistence that is so often just misdirected and externalized and seen somehow to be implicit in objects or in people or in events rather than, as the Buddha put it, really a fruition of a path 
where craving has come to an end. So the Buddha speaks both of worldly and non-worldly happiness. So when he speaks about non-worldly happiness, this is not implying a kind of dissociated happiness or a kind of happiness abstracted from life. But of course what the Buddha is always speaking about is, is that this capacity for an inwardly born and inwardly generated sukha that knows no reliance upon the world of conditions. And again, when, when the Buddha speaks about sukha, it's not so much a state. Again, it's not so much a noun. It's much more a verb. And he doesn't describe it as a state or an episode and not dependent upon satisfying our wants, but really a way of being present in the world that shines through all conditions a way of being inwardly that is really a fruition of insight, fruition of understanding, and describes sukha really as a sublime peace. So this evening I'd really like to invite you just to to take part for a few minutes in a, a little bit of an investigation to ask yourself in this moment, what beliefs you hold about happiness. I just take a moment just to reflect on what do I believe right now in my life that I need in order to be happy? What do I believe right now in my life that I need to alter or to get rid of or to fix in order to be happy. And mostly when we undertake that reflection, it very often does come down to the world of conditions, doesn't it? How would you feel if a person looked you in the eye and said, make me happy? Most of us would feel that as quite a pressure. <laughs> you know, and probably as an impossibility. You know. But in a so many subtle ways, don't we? We look at the world. And we look it in the eye and we say, make me happy. Make me happy. What do I believe about my capacity for sukha, for sublime peace? I mean, these questions might tell us something about who we believe ourselves to be, about what we're capable of or incapable of, about what is possible or impossible for ourselves. We might even reflect on how have we enacted our beliefs about happiness today? Have we been waiting for some discomfort to be over so we can find peace? 
Have we found ourselves engaged in modifying the conditions of our moment in order to be happy? Have we found ourselves engaging in the if-only ideology? If only I had a different body, if only I had a different life, if only I had a different partner, if only I had a different mind, I'd be really peaceful. (laughs) Have we found ourselves kind of looking longingly out the window, thinking, I'd be much more peaceful over there (laughs) than where I am. What do we get a sense of about unhappiness? How does it feel? How often it's felt as a kind of agitation? And Sukha is really speaking about the end of all agitations. It's very understandable. We want to be happy. We've had tastes of it. We know what it feels like. We'd like some more. We want to feel good. This is also understandable. But there's, I think there's, it's this equation that happens in our minds where we equate happiness with feeling good. And in this equation, we make happiness conditional, dependent upon feeling, dependent upon circumstances, and our capacity to rearrange the conditions of our lives. This can be very agitated. We don't want to be unhappy. We don't want to feel bad. This is also very human and very understandable. But we then equate the imperfect, fragile world of conditions with unhappiness. And we can become really relentless almost in our pursuit of the ideal conditions, the agitation of wanting, aversion, avoidance, the agitation of discontent. When the Buddha says that this is a path of happiness leading to the highest happiness, there's suggesting that there may be another way of being in this world, another way of inhabiting our bodies, inhabiting our minds, and inhabiting the imperfect conditions of our lives. Another way of participating with the world of conditions in our lives. A Zen master was once asked, what is the secret of your happiness? Apparently this is a question that's asked a lot in the Zen tradition. (laughs) It was asked, what is the secret of your happiness? And he said, complete unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. (laughs) For most of us, that's our life, isn't it? The path of happiness leading to the highest happiness. In this teaching, the path and the fruition of the path are really not seen as being separate. It's not suggested that we need 
to struggle and suffer and endure now in the service of a future reward of happiness. Instead, I think the sukha is offered as a a promise of some immediacy, cultivating sukha in the moment, in how we walk this path, in the quality of the efforts that we bring, in how we, how we walk on our walking path and sit on our cushion, on how we are present in our minds and bodies, how we are present with each other. Sukha is not about changing the conditions of our world, although these often do need wise action, but in changing the heart and mind that is present in the midst of all conditions. Walt Whitman, he once said, happiness is not in another place, but in this place, not for another hour, but this hour. Sukha's quality of happiness, again, is not about pretending. Life is not emotionally neutral or flat or homogenous. Just as there's joy, there is sadness and loss, and many of you in this room know that. There are many unwelcome changes. We look outside in our world and we see injustice and racism and the myriad of ways that human beings can inflict misery upon one another and upon our planet. None of this, all of this is true. And none of this may necessarily be a denial of peace. Sukha is not about elation or exhilaration or bliss. It's also not about the absence of sadness or sorrow. But it really is within it all. This quality of sublime peace where the heart rests and abides in peace and knows how to make peace with all things. There's a Japanese haiku that says, my, my real dwelling has no pillars and no roof either, so rain cannot soak it and wind cannot blow it down. So, what does sukha really look like? As a path and as a practice, the question, can we approach our retreat and our life with all its moments of joy and its moments of frustration and disappointment, the lovely and unlovely, as a place where we really learn to cultivate sukha, where we learn to cultivate and practice peace, and to ask ourselves what kind of shifts Inner shifts are needed. What kind of beliefs about sukha are we asked to relinquish even? What kind of radical shift in attitude is needed for us to engage with this moment, with all it brings moment to moment, as the path in which we cultivate peace? Clearly, first, we need to be here. We need to be awake. We need to be willing. We need to be wholehearted. 
I think it is why, you know, the Buddha was so radical at his time, rather than promoting a path of transcendence or overcoming or viewing life as a problem, to actually say it is this very life, the life we have to live, where we will find freedom of heart. And where he speaks about this calm abiding, this present moment recollection, as really the one fortunate attachment. The one attachment worth really treasuring. I came across this piece that I think rather poignantly illustrates this. It's written by a man called Philip Simmons. And the author of this piece was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease in 1993 and died nine years later. He says, I stand at the edge of a life made shorter by illness and can't help being pulled out of the present moment into mourning my losses, courting my fears. I sigh over my lost prowess as a hula dancer. I fear the day when I will be unable to lift a spoonful of lime jello to my lips. But we all stand at the edge. The present moment is itself an edge, the evanescent sliver of time between past and future. We're called away from it continually by our earthly pleasures and concerns. Even now you might be thinking it's time for another cup of coffee and one of those blueberry muffins. Seems it's always time to be doing something other than what we're doing at the moment. Hmm? While reading in your chair, you find yourself thinking about last night's argument with your spouse. You're thinking it's time to rake the leaves, check your email, get some sleep. The present moment, like the spotted owl or the sea turtle, has become an endangered species. Yet more and more I find that dwelling in the present moment, in the face of everything that would call us out of it, is our highest spiritual discipline. More boldly, I would say that our very presentness is our salvation. The present moment, entered into fully, is our gateway to eternal life. We are asked in the path of sukha to practice peace. Certainly we do find ourselves pulled out into thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, all the preoccupations we can have, so many of them. And we see how easy it is for us to become forgetful not lost in past or future, but lost in the world of our thoughts, our constructions, our fabrications. And in doing so, of course, we do become dissociated from this unique moment. And of course, so many moments when we're lost are also not emotionally neutral. How easily we become lost in our fearfulness of our regrets, our worries, our apprehensions, our guilts. 
I think the first step of practicing peace is really learning to untangle the heart, to disentangle the tangle, to unbind the heart from agitation, not of thought itself, but of being lost and being forgetful. We've talked about this a lot over the week. Our capacity to see a thought as a thought, arising and passing like a sound, like a sensation, appearing and fading. And it is a practice of learning to abide in peace, in a house without pillars, a house without a roof. Rather than the house of our constructions. And we do this a lot of moments. How many times do we do this in a single day, a single hour? We learn to remember. We learn to remember. And every time we learn to remember, we are here. It's a practice of liberating the moment, a practice of liberating the heart from agitation. Whenever the Buddha speaks about the world, he's always speaking about the world of experience. You know, and we can think of each moment in our life something like a blank canvas upon which we paint our world. And the world that we paint upon that canvas, of course, is the world that we inhabit. It's the world we call our own. And very often we mistake what we have painted as being reality. We paint our world with our emotions and our mental states, with our reactions, and we listen to ourselves and we we hear inwardly how we have painted our world. Sometimes it appears, you know, to form upon our views, our conclusions, our fears, our agitations, all of the ways that we solidify our thoughts into being the world, all the way that we solidify our assumptions or our emotions into being the world. We have many of these in a day, don't we? You know, people are greedy, you know. Life is suffering. I'm a failure. It can be so incessant. I think the path of sukha really relies upon us questioning our views, those, those closed rooms of our views, those closed rooms of our opinions. And if you really look at those closed rooms of our views, our opinions, the felt sense of is that it's one of agitation. You know, we feel it in our bodies, we feel it in our minds, we feel it in our hearts. And, oh, you know, really with the practice, we're learning to open the doors, to cultivate that willingness to be present here, now, unconditionally, however it is. This is really cultivating the conditions of sukha. It's cultivating the conditions of peace. Conditions too often, as was Philip said in that piece, in danger of becoming an endangered species.
think so much of a retreat is actually designed to cultivate the conditions of sukha, even though you may feel <laughs> different. <laughs> you may feel that we, the conditions of a retreat are designed to cultivate a sort of torture chamber or you know, some sort of desperate place of misery. But actually, you know, the conditions of a retreat are actually the conditions of sukha. And it's almost like these conditions of sukha in a retreat are the very conditions that we're invited to learn how to cultivate in all the moments of our lives. Solitude we've spoken about. Learning to be at ease in our aloneness, in contentment, in the midst of all things. Learning to love stillness, son. So much of our life can be frantic. To actually learn to love stillness. Learning to love silence and to treasure moments of non-doing. Learning to treasure those moments when we can just unhook from the world and from that inward sense of anxiety that is always telling us somehow we're not connected in some way or that we're missing out that we've been left behind. And mostly, you know, the conditions of a retreat, I think, are really there to invite us to learn to love to be awake rather than asleep or dissociated, rather than being lost in impulse or compulsion. And Joseph Campbell and said, he said, I think what people really most deeply long for is to feel fully alive. But hopefully, at least in some moments over these days, you may have found that by cultivating the conditions of sukha, some of the agitation begins to calm. And we can begin to understand some of the roots of the agitation that can govern our lives. And we can begin also to understand the roots of sukha, of abiding peace. The Buddha framed this very simply. He says, Blowing out the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, the heart is unbound and abides in freedom, whose nature is sukha, whose nature is peace. Now, greed, hatred, and delusion, I think, are very big words, you know, and often then we think that's got nothing to do with me, you know. Um, They're very big words, aren't they? Yeah, they're big words. They're hard words to hear, I think. And yet, of course, they are multi-spectrum words too, and like in so many ways can be just woven into the fabric of our hours and the fabric of our days and the fabric of our lives, wanting and not wanting and liking and disliking and being for and against and pursuing and avoiding. We don't even know why. It just kind of leaves us exhausted. Hmm? It leaves us exhausted. Yet all of this frantic activity that can shape our thoughts and our acts and our speech <coughs> and cause so much anguish moment to moment, it, it has very deep roots in, in just feeling somehow divorced from that inner sense of peace. That inner sense of sukha, 
So then we, we come up with all the ideas of what I need to be happy, that I'm not enough, I'm not adequate. And you notice how centralized the self is in agitation and in need and in want and all of the judgments about what's missing. And you notice how decentralized the idea of self is in all the moments of genuine happiness and genuine peace, genuine sukha. But that lack, you know, that sense of what I don't have is so big and it manifests as an appetite. And, and the world collaborates in this, you know, we see that. And Ryan spoke about it. The world constantly collaborating in this sense of lack. It is what keeps us shopping. And the whole message of insufficiency, and sometimes even that is a story told to us by others. You know, that you're not good enough, not lovable, not acceptable. And it's certainly a story we tell ourselves. It's interesting this relationship the Buddha is always making between dukkha that we have spoken about and sukha. And dukkha is very much that, that kind of world construction of the moment where there is a sense of struggle, of suffering, of anguish, contractedness. And as the Buddha put it, you know, dukkha is not a static state. It's not certainly not a life sentence. It's a kind of world of experience that is being created and recreated moment to moment. And particularly whenever we are giving credence and giving authority to the ideology of lack and then centralizing the inadequate me, the incomplete me in the middle of it. Because that, that is a culture and a centralization which by its very nature, because of its delusion, is actually going to always lead us to, to look outwardly for what is missing, what can be gained, what makes me unhappy and what I need to fix and get rid of in order to become happy. It's the delusion that keeps craving going. For saying, it says, though I am in Kyoto when the cuckoo sings, I long to be in Kyoto. <laughs> we are in Kyoto. <laughs> and the Buddha used this metaphor of fire often in his teaching, you know. And he, he said, if you keep throwing logs on a fire, it's going to burn ever more fiercely. None of us would dispute that, as long as the logs are dry. You keep throwing logs on a fire, it's going to burn ever more fiercely. You stop feeding the fire, and it will burn out and cool. My mother, who's very, very elderly now, she, she, she said to me a couple of years ago, she says, you know there's nothing I want and, and she says, you know what else? There's nothing I'm looking forward to. And she said, I always thought that would mean my life has no meaning. But she says, you know, it's strangely peaceful. Mm -hmm. 
Sukha describes the nature of a liberated heart, but it's also a verb, practicing, cultivating peace, peacemaking, calming, freeing, abiding. And where do we practice Sukha? In the moments when peace feels furthest from us. In the moments of contractedness, the moments of anxiety, the moments of aversion, the moments we feel most restless and dissociated, the moments when we see our eyes and our mind prowling the world, looking for something to satisfy, to gratify, to entertain, to take us away. We want the world to take us away. From what? From discontent. I mean, notice when you feel quite peaceful in, the, in, in yourself. These are not the moments you get busy with rehearsals and planning and strategizing and prowling the world and entertaining yourself. It's really interesting to see those moments of departure when we practice. Very rarely in a state of well-being and happiness and contentment, in a sitting or a walking, want to be somewhere else. Discontent and aversion, of course, are those triggers to get away. We cultivate sukha in the midst of craving and aversion, not outside of it. First, because these are the moments where first, of course, we need to develop sufficient mindfulness to actually know what's going on, to know that this is craving, this is aversion, this is discontent, and then to be able to pause and to ask, what are we not at peace with? What are we not at peace with? And the list can be really long once we start asking that question. You know, and and some of it is very, you know, just surface. You know, I don't like the sound of the wind. You know, I don't like the pain in my knee. I'm not at peace with this heartache or this difficult memory. The list may even feel too long or too endless, and the list can change day by day and hour to hour, minute to minute, can it? can't it? And sometimes we wake up with the list. We just wake up with the list of everything that's wrong, you know, everything that's imperfect and everything that's going to go wrong, everything that's lacking. And surely we, we do know, and, and, and it's very important we're talking about the world of experience because we do know in the wider world there is much that is unacceptable, that does ask for compassionate and wise action. But that's usually not what our list is concerned with. It revolves around the, the, this kind of sense of vacuum inwardly. A sense of not enough, sense of lack. So what does peacemaking really look like in these moments? What does it mean to be peaceful amidst the imperfect, amidst affliction, amidst adversity, amidst hostility, amidst pain? Can we restrain that first impulse, either to dissociate or to fix, to get rid of, and to make something else happen? Can we actually learn in those moments to be still, to open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts in a way in which we're really inhabiting the body, inhabiting the moment, perhaps really understanding that if peace is not to be found here, it is unlikely to be found elsewhere. 
The Buddha very much described Nibbana or liberation as the freedom from compulsion. The freedom from the compulsions of aversion, of agitation, of craving. And we can learn actually to bring such a gentle touch to these moments and to ask ourselves what is truly lacking. And it's a really good idea to learn to develop the habit of stillness. You don't need to have perfect conditions for that. But to learn to develop the habit of stillness for, so that we can really ask ourselves, I think, the, the important questions and, and come to know those places that we are really asked to make peace with. You know, that none of us are going to be entirely successful in making the world of conditions perfect. None of us are going to live forever. None of us are going to be exempt from illness or exempt from loss. None of us are going to be exempt from knowing uncertainty and have only wonderful and lovely people in our lives. None of us are going to be successful in having only pleasant thoughts and emotions and events, ideal conditions. This is the human landscape. And peace asks for us to look very carefully at this landscape and to look at what we superimpose upon it, upon the human condition that actually invites so much compassion. How much we superimpose upon the human condition, our world of despair and helplessness and anger and blame. This is the stuff from which our nightmares are made. The greatest peace lies in the alignment of our hearts with the way things actually are, with, with the reality of dis- unsatisfactoriness, with the reality of uncertainty, with the reality of non-self, of laying down those arguments, laying down the extra layers of fear and aversion and agitation and beginning to taste inwardly that inwardly generated peace that inwardly generated contentment and ease that is really the nature of sukha. It is that inner confidence, I think, that allows us to go into our lives fearlessly, to meet our lives fully. It's what allows us really to touch each moment with kindness and compassion and appreciation. And I think to know this peace, this sukha inwardly, is to know what it means to touch the world with peace that it so deeply needs. Again, there's a Chinese proverb. If you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. (laughs) If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a month, get married. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, if you want abiding happiness, understand yourself. And in generosity, you know, is the nature of that inner peace. It's the nature of that inner sukha. 
it's a, it, it's it, generosity. Sukha is the nature to care, to give, to to listen. If discontent, I think, is the hunger to get, sukha is actually the hunger to give. It's what allows us to be a friend to ourselves, to all events and experiences, even in their imperfection. I think it is learning to cultivate sukha inwardly, moment to moment, is something that actually flowers. It is one of the fruits of the practice that begins with our willingness to inhabit this life, this moment, ourselves, just as we are. I'd like to end with a, a, a beautiful poem I absolutely love. It's by a poet called Fernando Pessoa from a book of poetry called A Little Larger Than the Entire Universe. Quite a humble title. (laughs) Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well and there may be a castle and there may be just more road. I don't know and don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I only look at the road before the bend, because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are. There's enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That, for them, is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we only know that we're not there. Here, there's just the road before the bend. And before the bend, there's the road without any bend. (laughs) Take just a couple of moments quietly to get... (laughs) It's a time for some uh, walking and then the last group sitting of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.